This is Anchored in Christ, the sermon podcast that gives you hope in the gospel as an anchor for your soul. Brought to you from Old South Presbyterian Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts. Now you may notice me limping just a little bit to get up the stairs this morning, and it's not because I'm wounded because the Yankees lost this past week. But had a little bit of a ruptured plantar fascia that I hurt golfing on Friday at the 17th hole, and luckily I got the round in, but a few x-rays later, eh, so no crutches, but I'm going to walk up the stairs slowly, okay, and don't worry, I'll get there. It kind of reminds me of the first sermon that I ever preached as an intern and it was at Christ Memorial Church in Holland, Michigan in 1987. And it was like this. You had to climb upstairs, and you got up, and you opened a gate, and, and the pulpit was kind of like on this pillar. And you walked up. And there was a huge wood wedge sounding board over it. And I was never more petrified in my entire life. And I wondered, how did I get into this predicament? Calling, that dreaded word. Calling to your first sermon. Many preachers remember their first sermon. It's like that old story about a preacher who was leaving a congregation on his last Sunday, and at the end of the service, he stood at the door while the people filed out and said their last goodbyes. And one woman came to the preacher, weeping full of emotion, and the preacher attempted to comfort her. There, there, sister, even though I'm leaving, I'm sure the bishop will send you a wonderful preacher. Through her tears, she replied, that's what they've been telling us for 20 years, and it ain't happened yet. (laughs) Will Willimon says that a first sermon is kind of like a first date. You want to do well, be impressive, put your best foot forward, and not say anything dumb that might endanger the future relationship. It can be a struggle, however, because we know our own struggles and our weaknesses. We know that at base we aren't any more qualified than anyone else to speak for God, regardless of a newly framed seminary degree that we put on our office door. And so we shake a little, wondering how we come to be standing there with the word of God on our lips. We try to keep it in, like Jeremiah doesn't work. Here I am, 34 years later, after that first sermon in in that pulpit. There was a Heinz pickle factory in Holland, Michigan, and we called that pulpit the pickle barrel because it looked like a big pickle barrel when you walked in there. Thinking about that this week after 34 years, and if... Just for the sake of argument, 34 years worth of maybe 45 sermons a year comes to me 
to about 1,530 sermons. Just where I thought, boy, that sounds great. I looked up George Whitfield's history. <laughs> 18,000 sermons. To the day he died. But every preacher, yes, even George Whitfield, went through that experience of preaching that first sermon. So did the great apostle Peter. And it's recorded in today's reading in Acts. At first glance, we all know Peter seems totally unqualified to preach. He hadn't spent his three years in seminary, but in the school of apostolic embarrassment, we know his resume. He wasn't known as a careful study before speaking, but rather had that ready-fire-aim approach to shooting his mouth off. He was the one, after all, who identified Jesus as the Messiah, but then rebuked the Son of God because he didn't agree with Jesus' cross-shaped agenda. Witnessing to the glory of the transfiguration, his first response was not to worship, but what? He formed a committee. He actually had a chance to walk on water rather than sailing on it, but his lack of faith made him sink. When Jesus chose to go peacefully with his captors, Peter turned to violence. And having boldly proclaimed that he would follow Jesus even unto death, he instead denied him that he even knew him. Three times. When he found out that Jesus was alive, his first response was to go back to his old job and fishing. Indeed, if you're looking for a qualified preacher to deliver that first Christian sermon ever, you probably look over that track record and ask the divine bishop for another man. But again, as I said a few weeks ago, you know that God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. And although Peter was a largely bumbling, impetuous disciple before his first sermon, he had learned the truth about Jesus the hard way. No one knew better than he that Jesus could forgive and restore those who had betrayed him out of sin and fear. He had experienced it all. And now he had a story to tell that no theological degree could ever match. Jesus told Peter in Galilee to feed the flock. And that's exactly what Peter intended to do. With some preparation, of course. The preparing and equipping power of the Holy Spirit. Without the events of Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit, however, Peter might never have told that story, especially in front of some of the very people who wanted Jesus de dead and could just as easily sign Peter and his fellow disciples that same fate. 
This illustrates a vital principle of Christian preaching. Whether it's the first sermon or the 18,000th sermon. Without the Holy Spirit, a preacher, anyone, is just giving a speech. Jesus told the disciples to wait in prayer for the Spirit to come upon them and that they could be his witnesses. And for once in his life, Peter had waited instead of acting and made it, that made all the difference. The one known for shooting off his mouth was now going to be known as a witness for Christ who preached through and by the power of the Spirit. So there he stood in Jerusalem on that day of Pentecost, raising his voice and launching into the sermon. Tim read it, some of it, last week, and we're going to read through it again today. So we're finally getting to our third lesson. Here it is, Acts 2, 14 to 41. Listen to this sermon. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even upon my slaves, both men and women. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show portents in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and shake and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You that are Israelites, listen to what I have to say. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him among you as you yourselves know. This man handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. But God raised him up having freed him from death because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand so that I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will live in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One experience corruption you have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Fellow Israelites, I may say to you confidently of our ancestor David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us in this day. Since he was a prophet, 
He knew that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would not put one of his, that he would put one of his descendants on this throne. Foreseeing this, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, saying he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh experience corruption. This Jesus, God raised up. One of that all of us are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you both see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ so that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all that are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them saying, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So those who welcomed his message were baptized. And on that day, about 3,000 persons were added. Talk about a first sermon. But the introduction wasn't very great. What if you have to preface a sermon by telling the congregation you're not drunk? Imagine that happening today. But Peter then makes a move in this sermon that can't fail. He turns to the scriptures, perhaps the best place to start the sermon. I shared in the heart of the matter the other day that I remember my preaching professor standing there and getting up at the blackboard. Remember those blackboards that we used to have? And he wrote a quote often attributed to John Calvin, preaching the word of God is the word of God. I wanted to run then. I still want to run now. But Peter went directly to the scriptures and preached the word of God. Quoting from the prophet Joel, he sets the stage for what has happened. The spirit whom God had promised through the prophet had now come, enabling all who call on the name of the Lord to be saved. He recounts the recent events of Jesus' life and death and resurrection from the dead, events that many in the crowd had witnessed in which some had actively participated by encouraging authorities to put Jesus to death. By what they had meant as a means of getting rid of Jesus, God had meant as a means of fulfilling his promise of salvation from his, for, for his creation for all who believe. 
Jesus was freed from death in the resurrection, which meant that the power of sin and death itself had been broken. Then Peter, like any good sermon, furthers it on by using supporting evidence of scriptures. The resurrection of Jesus was God's plan revealed to the patriarchs of David, Israel's glorious king, who had prophesied about the resur resurrection in Psalm 16, 8 to 11, which Peter quotes to support his sermon. David wasn't writing about himself, Peter says, doing the exegetical work of a good preacher. After all, people would go and visit David's tomb, and his body was still there. Jesus' tomb, on the other hand, was empty a fulfillment of David's prophecy that one of his descendants would sit on David's royal throne, that is, one who would not be abandoned to Hades or did not experience corruption. And then Peter's conclusion is one of those drop-the-mic moments. This Jesus God raised up, he thunders. And of that, all of us are witnesses. The one who was crucified is now exalted at the right hand of God and initiated the pouring out of the Holy Spirit they just witnessed in fire, wind, and language. They looked for a Messiah in the line and mold of David, but they had received much more. They had received the very one whom David himself had called Lord. The Jesus they crucified is Lord and Messiah of all. If you read Peter's sermon through, it's about five minutes or so. Wow. Chances are, if a preacher went that short on Sunday morning, the salary would be readjusted. But Peter's first sermon boils down to the essential content of the gospel into a message that would be repeated over and over again by people who have never needed seminary degrees in order to preach. It's the simple affirmation that the Jesus who was crucified is the Jesus who has been raised from the dead. And all of us are witnesses to that fact through the eyes of faith by grace. All of us are witnesses of scripture and in the way we live our lives. Doesn't matter how long a preacher has been preaching or if one is ever a professional preacher at all, Peter's sermon is the first and last message that as followers of Jesus, we should all be preaching it. In fact, every Christian message proceeds from this message. Again, we're journeying through the book of Acts of looking at why church, why are we here, what are we doing? And it's especially important to do and look at in this trans season of transitional ministry to explore why we are the church. And again, the book of Acts presents to us those four key elements of the beloved community. And yes, here comes some Greek 
Didache, teaching, koinonia, fellowship, diaconia, service, and yes, kerygma, proclamation. These are the necessary elements of a worshiping body, of a beloved community, the body of Christ. And it all hinges on the powerful proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord. And yes, here it comes again. All of us, all of us are called to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. For yes, we are all living sermons of God's love. And just like Jeremiah, no matter how hard we try, we can't keep it in. It is one of my favorite quips, erroneously sometimes attributed to St. Francis. Preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. We are called to embody that first sermon of Jesus. Can you imagine that scene when he sat in that, in that room with all his esteemed leaders around him and he pulls out that prophecy from Isaiah and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the ear of the Lord's favor. talk about a mic drop when he sits down. He says, today, those words have been fulfilled in your hearing. But he calls on us to do the same. All of us. We proclaim the gospel in 18,000 sermons and also and especially in the way that we live out the gospel and sharing love and hope and grace and peace and inclusiveness and understanding to such a lost and broken world so loved by God. And all of it hinges on the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. Another N.T. Wright story, I love New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright, and he was former Anglican bishop in Durham in England. And some years back when he was still bishop, he, he tells the story of him getting into a cab in London one day, whereupon the driver, seeing Wright's clergy collar, asked what he did for a living. And yes, Wright, in fact, did respond that he was a bishop. And I can't do a British accent. My son-in-law is Brit, so forgive me. Ah, the driver said, you Church of England people, you're still having all that trouble with women bishops, aren't you? Right, admit it that, yes, that was indeed the case. The way I look at it, replied the driver, if God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, all the rest is basically rock and roll. Whether you're behind the wheel of a cab in London, standing in this pulpit, standing out by the wharf. That's a sermon we're always called to preach. I have now ended sermon number 1531 or thereabouts. Amen. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this sermon from Old South Presbyterian Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts. If you'd like more information about our historic church, or you'd like to find out more about the gospel of Jesus, please visit our website at oldsouthnbpt.org. The peace of Christ be with you.